From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Joel Street. I oversee the teams that produce Mayo Clinic Radio, the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast, and all the great content seen on the Mayo Clinic News Network. The COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic has affected us all, and for the time being, we'll change the sound of our program just a bit. In an effort to deliver the information that you and your family need to know, the first half of our program will be focused on COVID-19. This could be in the interview format that you're used to hearing, or highlights for Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts, or Mayo Clinic News Network coverage of the pandemic. Thanks for joining us, and let's get started. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. Mayo Clinic has been a leader in developing and deploying testing for COVID-19. But understanding the array of these tests, what each of them are for and what they measure and when they should be used can be confusing at best. Terms like viral, molecular, serology, and antibodies aren't clear for everyone. So when do we use the different tests for COVID-19? Here to help us understand this question today is Dr. Bobby Pritt. Dr. Pritt is the chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being with us today, Dr. Pritt. It's my pleasure, Helena. Thank you for inviting me. It's wonderful to have you here. I think it is so confusing because we are hearing in the news all the time about this new test and that new test, and some of them take a long time and some of them don't take very long. And I think um, the public, uh, many of us have no idea when to order what test or, or what one, um, what they mean. So thanks for being here. Could you help us to understand, first of all, the two basic types of tests, a swab test that's diagnostic and a blood test for antibodies. What, what are those tests for? I would be happy to. So as you mentioned, we could break this down simply into two types of widely available tests at this time. So the swab test, which collects a specimen from your nose or throat, detects the virus itself. More specifically, it detects the virus's genetic material called RNA. Because it's detecting the virus itself, that will answer the question of whether or not you're currently infected. So this, would te- this test would be appropriate if you're currently experiencing signs and symptoms of COVID-19 like fever and chills, body ache, dry cough, loss of smell. So that's the swab test. Now, in contrast, the blood test is completely different. It detects something called antibodies, and these are proteins your body forms one to two weeks after you've been exposed to the virus. And antibodies are part of your body's defense system against the virus. So when you have those and they're detectable, that means that you've been previously infected. So they're really answering two different types of questions here, whether you're infected now or whether you've been infected in the past. And how long do the results for each of those type of tests take? Well, it depends on the laboratory in which testing is performed and if the specimen needs to be shipped to the laboratory. So if the specimen is just going to your local laboratory, then results could be available in just a few hours, or it could take a day or two. But obviously, it's going to take a little longer if the specimen has to go further away. How do I know if I need to have one of these tests? 
it's best to speak with your provider to determine whether or not you should be tested. And if there's a phone line for testing at your local healthcare facility, you can also call that line for more guidance. So if I test positive uh, for COVID-19, Dr. Pritt, then what happens? Do I have to go to the clinic to see my physician? Do I have to um, be hospitalized? What, what happens next? Good question. You'll want to get advice from your healthcare provider. Fortunately, most people can recover safely at home, but you'll want to quarantine yourself and stay away from others so that you don't spread infection to them. And it's important to note that health officials may also conduct something called contact tracing, in which they try to determine who you might have come into contact with while you were infectious to others. But during the time that you're home and you're sick, you'll want to take good care of yourself, get enough rest, and of course, stay well hydrated. And importantly, if you start experiencing any extremely troublesome symptoms, such as difficulty breathing, then you'll want to call your healthcare provider right away or maybe even go to the emergency room. So if I test positive, but then I successfully recover from COVID-19, I'm feeling better, ready to go back to work. Do I need to be tested again, or do I need to have the antibody testing at that point? Not necessarily. You'll want to discuss this with employee health, if that is available, or talk to your own physician and get advice. But at this time, we don't know exactly what the significance of having antibodies means, and therefore, it's not a test that we're recommending everyone get. We know that antibodies provide protection from the virus, at least some extent of protection, but we don't know how long the antibodies will last, and we don't know if they'll prevent someone from becoming infected again. So unfortunately, they can't be used as that magic test to let someone go back to work. You still would want to take precautions such as wearing a mask, staying six feet away from others, washing your hands, and also following any rules that your employer may have. It doesn't seem like there are any easy answers to this. <laughs> it's very <laughs> true. Yeah. Why is it important to use antibody testing and for whom? Yeah, well, let's start by first just saying what antibodies are. Antibodies are proteins that are formed by your body's immune system. So they're part of your body's response to infectious threats, such as viruses and bacteria. And the antibodies help fight infections. And so you can protect yourself from future infections with these antibodies. When you have antibodies to a virus, such as the COVID-19 virus, then that does mean that you've been infected in the past and your body has responded successfully to the infection. But unfortunately, as we just mentioned, we don't know how long those antibodies will last and we don't know how protective they are. So at this point, the main use of antibody testing is to determine how many people in a population has been infected. That would be helpful for just uh, epidemiology and community health, but also to possibly identify people who can donate their plasma to help others fight COVID-19. Oh, that's really interesting, the connection between um, those treatments that we hear about and, and the testing that's going on as well. Exactly. You know, uh, when, when people talk about testing, we hear the terms sometimes like false positive, false negative. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us um, what those mean and why it matters? Yeah, let's talk about uh, false negatives. That's something that people are really concerned about. Um, a false negative result is when you're actually positive, but the test gives you a negative result. 
So for example, if you had COVID-19, you were feeling sick, you had a fever, and you went and got tested with the nasal swab method, but the result was negative, then we would call that a false negative because you were actually positive. Now, the opposite would be if you weren't sick at all and you were tested and you had a positive result, that would be a false positive where you didn't actually have the infection, but the test told you did. So it's important to remember that no test is perfect. There's always a chance of getting a false negative or a false positive result. And some tests are more likely to produce false negatives than others. Um, also, the type of specimen that's tested is important and how well the specimen is collected. So right now, the best specimen we have to detect active infection is a swab that is obtained through your nose and it goes deep back into your throat. That's called a nasal pharyngeal swab. So a nasal pharyngeal swab that's collected by a highly trained and experienced healthcare worker and then tested by a highly sensitive test at a high quality laboratory is least likely to produce these erroneous false negative and false positive results. Isn't that interesting? Because I think that uh, most of us would think that all tests are created equal. In other words, yeah. you know, if I go get a test um, in New York for COVID or I go get one in California, that, that they're the same test, but that's maybe not true. Yes, and also the different types of specimens that are collected may be better at detecting viruses than others. So for example, a specimen that is collected just from the front part of your nose or from your throat is less likely to have the virus in it and therefore more likely to produce a false negative result than that really deep nasal pharyngeal swab. So that's why that's the gold standard specimen for testing with the swab test. Well, how do I know if the test that I'm getting is accurate? Yeah, good question. As I mentioned before, there's no perfect test with 100% accuracy. But if you get tested from a healthcare system that you trust, where the test is performed by a high quality laboratory, and the specimen was collected by highly trained and experienced healthcare providers, then you can feel confident with that result. As I mentioned, though, Given that no test is perfect, if your result is negative and you continue to feel sick, you should always feel free to call your healthcare provider and talk to that person and see if you should be tested again or maybe even receive a different type of test. Dr. Pritt, tell us a little bit about um, what preventative measures that I can take, um, assuming I've had a COVID test and I'm waiting for the result, or even if I haven't had to have one yet, what, what sort of recommendations do you give? Sure. Well, regardless of whether you've been tested or not, you're going to want to take steps to protect yourself and others during the COVID-19 pandemic. And that would mean things such as washing your hands frequently, maintaining social distance, which is about six feet apart from others, wearing a mask when that is indicated to do so, and staying home when you're able. Uh, you'll want to follow the guidelines as presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, and also your employer and local government. And then, of course, if you've received a test, you'll want to follow up on those test results. And if you don't receive them, then you'll want to call your provider and have those results relayed to you. Thanks so much, Dr. Pritt, for being with us. I think this has been exceptionally helpful in clarifying testing. Sounds like there's an awful lot that goes into it, more than 
um, many of us probably understood. Thanks so much uh, for joining us. This has been uh, Mayo Clinic Q&A with Dr. Bobby Pritt today. She's the chair of the um, Division of Clinical Microbiology at Mayo Clinic. Mayo Clinic Radio returns right after this. Welcome to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. Well, it's time again for another COVID update. And here to help us with that is Dr. Greg Poland, virologist and infectious disease expert uh, for Mayo Clinic and our resident COVID expert. Welcome, Dr. Poland. Good morning, Helena. Greg, I wondered if you'd catch us up a little bit on um, this syndrome that seems to, or set of symptoms that seem to be affecting children uh, mm. related to COVID-19? Yeah, you know, it's got, a, it's got an interesting name and it's long enough that I wrote it down. It's called Pediatric Multisystem Inflammatory Syndrome Associated with COVID-19. What's happening, and there are now, I think, roughly about 150 children who have been diagnosed with this in uh, New York City. This is a syndrome that's uh, inherently a highly inflammatory condition as a result of COVID-19 infection where they're seeing sort of a, a hybrid between an atypical Kawasaki syndrome and a toxic shock-like syndrome. We've, we've seen that with other disorders, and it just speaks to the highly inflammatory nature. That's played out a little differently in adults. We've heard of COVID toes, for example, and these very atypical large vessel occlusions in people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. So much so, in fact, uh, last, late last night, there was another paper released that was a, uh, a clinical pathologic study of, I think it was 12, 11 or 12 people who had died uh, who had COVID-19 and did not have suspected thrombosis. And when they did the autopsies, they all had thrombosis and they had significant levels of, of clotting throughout their organs. So this is, uh, we, we have seen something similar to this with influenza, with herpes zoster, that people can have MIs and strokes. This is sort of that amped up a thousandfold, where we're seeing widespread uh, venous occlusions, uh, arterial thrombosis. Some of the interventional neuroradiologists will talk about trying to fish out a large clot from a large vessel uh, in the brain. And while they're doing that, another one is forming. Uh, and some of this even on uh, uh, um, heparin uh, prophylaxis. So the, the dawning conclusion is that when we have these patients, we're probably going to have to look at full anticoagulation of these individuals in order to protect them. That's something we haven't done before in a situation like this. You mentioned this concept of COVID toes, yeah. and I know that you know we've seen some talk about this. I'm aware of a, an individual who had a rash on their feet, uh, went in, and the dermatologist thought this was probably COVID, even though they were asymptomatic. Yeah. So are you saying that COVID toes is a really a, a blood clot? Yeah, it's really, it's really a small vessel and capillary thrombosis uh, that, that's occurring. Uh, we don't have any reason to suspect that it's uh, uh, vasospasm, uh, and so that's what we're, we're actually left with. Um, and again, what does this mean? It means that when we have somebody hospitalized, you know, when they're sick enough to be hospitalized, 
we're going to have to rethink, uh, do we anticoagulate these individuals? What, what's really interesting to me and, uh, and to you as, as physicians and as scientists is when you, when you stop to consider that over the last 17, 18 weeks, the amount of science that we have learned. I mean, if somebody came in with COVID on week one and somebody got admitted with COVID now in week 18, their treatment is inherently and completely different in terms of what we look for, how we treat them, how we ventilate them, whether we ventilate them, anticoagulate them, what drugs we would treat them with or not treat them with. This is unprecedented in human history. That really is a fascinating concept, particularly when you think about that many um, elective surgeries and appointments were deferred to allow for conservation of resources. And some Mm -hmm. of those resources clearly went into investigating uh, this virus and its um, symptomatology. And you know, you're, you're, you're exactly health. right, Helena. And that, and that has some ripple effects that we will have to deal with as a medical community. For example, um, many kids and adults now are getting behind on routine immunizations. And um, one paper showed that when they looked at COVID patients who had uh, frank COVID pneumonia, that 94% of them were co-infected with another pulmonary pathogen. Now, some of those are going to be pneumococci. Uh, Depending on where you live, it could be measles, mumps, pertussis, influenza this coming fall. In other words, diseases that we have vaccines to prevent. So we're going to really have to think about this fall when we all expect a resurgence of COVID-19. How do we ensure that we are giving people the routine medical care that they need. It's still important. Um, think about patients with heart disease, with cancer, uh, the patients that, uh, that you see that are, that are suffering with, with uh, really chronic pain. Those are not things that we can put off for very long without having secondary effects that we don't want to have happen. It seems that some are not concerned about being together at all. I'm thinking of Wisconsin, where they the court case they recently reopened um, many things in Wisconsin, and there were they were showing pictures the next day of people in bars and restaurants, practically you know shoulder to shoulder and on top of each other. And I think this is probably happening in other states too. It, it very much is, uh, and some of this reopening, which has to be geographic based on epidemiology, but. You know, Indiana, for example, has had a, another surge in cases and yet reopening. These are, these are things that individual people, our listeners, are going to have to consider carefully. Uh, it's one thing to make a, a, a suggestion at the state or national level. It's another thing to look at the local epidemiology and make a reasoned decision, a discerning decision about what, what's best for your health. Thank you for joining us today. Of course. Poland, virologist and infectious disease expert from Mayo Clinic. Mayo Clinic Radio will return right after this. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Secondhand cigarette smoke is a combination of smoke from the burning end of a cigarette and the smoke breathed out by smokers. Exposure to secondhand smoke has been linked to cardiovascular disease, lung cancer, and an increased risk of sudden infant death syndrome. But what about exposure to secondhand electronic cigarette smoke? Now, first, let's go back to tobacco. When people smoke tobacco products, a myriad of chemicals are released into the air. It's those chemicals, not the addictive nicotine, that pose a danger. Dr. Taylor Hayes, director of Mayo Clinic's Nicotine Dependence Center, says the dangerous components are the other 6,000 things that are in tobacco smoke, and they are created because tobacco is burned. But does vape smoke have similar effects as to those who are around tobacco smoke? Dr. Hayes says that there isn't any data on secondhand vape smoke, which is actually an aerosol. He says the little particles that are inhaled by the vapor are also released into the atmosphere. And if they are an irritant to the lungs, which we know they are in people who vape, then in secondhand vaping, there probably are also irritants. With flavorings like vanilla, cinnamon, and grape, e-cigarettes may smell a whole lot better than a burning tobacco product, but that doesn't mean they are safe to be around. Now, we haven't developed the data yet to say that it's clearly dangerous, says Dr. Hayes, but it probably is. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Cancer of the ovary is fortunately relatively rare, but it can be very difficult to detect, very difficult to diagnose. And some cases aren't diagnosed until the cancer has already spread to the abdomen or other parts of the pelvis. What do you do then? Joining us in studio to talk about newer and novel treatments for ovarian cancer is the chair of the Department of Gynecology at Mayo Clinic in Florida, Dr. Matthew Robertson. Welcome to Minnesota. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. <laughs> Dr. Robertson, nice to have you on the program. We know that ovarian cancer is one that that women don't want to have. It's difficult to treat, difficult to diagnose. But I saw that the number of women being diagnosed with ovarian cancer is actually decreasing. That is true. The, according to statistics from the American Cancer Society, we are indeed seeing a slight decrease. And do we know why? No, we really don't. Uh, there are a lot of theories out there. There were tubal ligations, um, hysterectomies, some of the protective factors that we're aware of uh, may be playing a role, but at this point, we're not exactly certain. If you've had a hysterectomy, you're less likely to get ovarian cancer? Yes, sir. Well, interesting. But do we know why that is? Well, it, hysterectomy itself is removal of the uterus. Uh, so you would think, how is that going to protect you if the ovary and the fallopian tubes are still there? But retrospective data looking at women who only had the uterus removed, they actually have a decreased uh, incidence of ovarian cancer. It's thought that it may somehow affect the blood supply to the ovaries, but we don't know that definitively. One of the risk factors, though, is obesity. And we hear every day that the obesity rate is greatly increasing in the country. And so then it surprises me that it doesn't seem to go hand in hand. Agreed. Hmm. Uh, some other risk factors, some other women who are at higher risk. Well, we there's two, uh, if you will, broad overreaching themes, um, incessant ovulation. Uh, the theory there is that there's some type of trauma, if you will, to the surface epithelium uh, of the ovary. What's that so mean? Th- so, in other words, when the follicle ruptures in the ovary. Follicle is the egg. Yeah, coming out of the ovary when as the ovary tries to repair itself. So, in other words, women who are ovulating more likely in their o- lifetime more may have a higher risk. Hmm. Now, 
that is one of the reasons that birth control pills, where women don't ovulate, pregnancy, breastfeeding, etc., why these may be protective. The other theory then goes into some of the local hormonal concentrations, how that may be affecting it. And then certainly, as we learn more and more about our uh, human genome, we know that ladies who have, unfortunately, either a BRCA mutation, BRCA1 or 2. A gene um, mutation. A gene mutation. Lynch syndrome. This is familial uh, colon cancer. We know there's a higher risk of ovarian cancer as well. And then with our expanding knowledge, in addition to those, we're BRIP1. Uh, RAD 51C and D, all these genetic mutations, as we learn more and more, those are placing women at higher risk. What about women who have had previous fertility treatment? Are they at increased risk? They are at increased risk. And then what about a family history? Family history can be, even if a, a, a mutation is not detected, there is some thought that indeed they may have a mutation, which we're simply not seeing at this time. So ovarian cancer becomes much more difficult to treat if it has already spread, either regionally or throughout the body. Tell us about the stages. It's always difficult for many of us to understand because there are different stages for different cancer. Tell us about the stages of ovarian cancer. Stage one is when the disease is confined to the ovary. Stage two, it's confined to the pelvis below the pelvic rim. Stage three is when it's disseminated throughout the abdominal cavity. And stage four is when it's either spread into uh, the lungs. A lot of times there'll be fluid at the base of the lungs with malignant cells. Or when it's within the substance of the liver, substance of the spleen, or even the inguinal lymph nodes. And very difficult to treat in later exactly. stages. Exactly. How do you, uh, chemotherapy, surgery, how are the main ways to treat ovarian cancer? The traditional approach has been twofold um, in that we quite simply try to cut out as much as possible. There's very good data that um, the amount of disease remaining is going to determine the lady's prognosis of being cured. But even if we finish the operation when there's no visible disease, we know that there's always microscopic disease left behind, and that's why our treatment has always been surgery with chemotherapy to follow. And sometimes tell us about the more novel treatment methods that you're using now in, in chemotherapy in the abdomen in particular. So there was a study a number of years ago that uh, showed that given chemotherapy within the abdomen uh, by having a indwelling catheter improved survival. So that's a little tube that goes into the abdomen and you put the chemotherapy in that way? Yes, sir. And the problems that we ran into were just catheter maintenance. It could become clogged. It could lead to infection, etc. So it, it really was not well tolerated by patients. It was difficult for physicians to manage the complications, etc. So Fast forward, we have now learned and uh, that HIPEC, heated intraperitoneal chemotherapy, given at the time of surgery, has been shown in a randomized study that came from Europe. Uh, it was published, uh, I believe, January of last year, 18, and uh, New England Journal showed that for patients who had received half of the chemotherapy of their usual prescribed dosage up first, and then went for surgery if you were able to have no residual or optimally debulked. In other words, no tumors remaining less than one centimeter. That those patients who received high 
then recovered and completed their chemotherapy, those patients had an improved overall survival. What difference does it make? I mean, it sounds more comfortable, but why should it be warm? Why does it need to be heated? Great question. Um, it's, it's mechanisms. Um, I've got a colleague uh, in Jacksonville who does a tremendous amount of this with his colon cancer as well. And it's his opinion, and I'm going to be very clear, this is an opinion, but it may have something to do with affecting the immune response within the abdominal cavity. But it's very clear as well that um, heated chemotherapy causes increased penetration into tumor. It causes apoptosis, fancy medical term for killing of tumor cells. It activates what are called heat shock proteins, which are receptors for natural killer cells. So that therefore, once again, that this is somehow hopefully stimulating the local immune response. So Have you proven that this improves survival? That study did, yes, sir. All right, prognosis overall for women with ovarian cancer. Is it improving? It is. Uh, you know, I finished my training in the late 90s, um, and at that point, our five-year survival rates were about 30%, all comers, all stages. Now we're getting close to 50%, all stages combined. Unfortunately, about 70% of all comers will at some point develop a recurrence. All right, cancer of the ovary, fortunately, relatively rare, often diagnosed late. There are newer and novel treatments available to treat the disease. Our thanks to Dr. Matthew Robertson. My pleasure. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about the chronic pain condition, trigeminal neuralgia. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, we recently had a listener, as you know, contact us and ask us to do a program on trigeminal neuralgia. Hmm. And we listened. We're paying attention. And so we invited two of the world's experts on trigeminal neuralgia to answer that inquiry. Joining us in studio are Mayo Clinic neurologist, Dr. Chris Bays, and neurosurgeon, Dr. Bruce Pollock. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Thanks. Good to have you both. So tell us about this condition. And as, and as I recall from medical school, another name for this was Tic Doloreau. Is that, did I pronounce that That's correctly? That's right. Yeah? Uh, so what is it? So uh, some people say actually the only thing uh, that pains people more than Tic Doloreau is if you're a French person and you hear an American say that. <laughs> and I was guy. afraid of that. <laughs> but I try. I'm from Nebraska, same problem. But, um, so they call it uh, sometimes tic douleur because people get severe, short-lasting face pain and they'll sometimes wince. And it's a unilateral pain, so they kind of wince one-sided. on one side. So yeah. they kind of look like they might have a little eye tick um. or something like that. So that, that's where that saying comes from and the word trigeminal where did that come from yeah so the trigeminal nerve is one of the 12 cranial nerves and there's three branches to it so that's the tri part uh part of it's like your forehead the other part's your cheek and then the other part is down in your jaw so that's where the tri what's usually happening to a patient that has this problem dr pollock well it usually is noted when people are in their 50s or 60s. It's more common in women than men, and they begin to notice this electric shock that's on one side of their face when they're either brushing their teeth or eating. 
And so uh, for, for a while, it often goes undiagnosed or it's thought to be a dental problem. Uh, but they usually trickle through and work their way to a, a good family practitioner uh, or a knowledgeable dentist and get diagnosed with trigeminal neuralgia. And what causes it? Um, there's a variety of things that can cause it. Um, a small percentage of people have tumors that can, re- that can cause trigeminal neuralgia, but that's on the order of 1% or less. Uh, there's a percentage of people with multiple sclerosis that will present with trigeminal neuralgia, uh, younger women primarily, and it can be two-sided in that condition. Uh, but the most common cause is a vascular compression, that a small artery is pushing on the trigeminal nerve, and each time the heart beats, it basically wears down the fatty covering of the trigeminal nerve and eventually results in these electric shocks. You that mentioned. sounds terrible. <laughs> but it's fixable. Okay, right. good. You mentioned, uh, um, so I assume that people don't have this all the time. It's not a constant pain because you said a couple of things that set it off were what? Eating and brushing your teeth. Yes. Uh, so it isn't present all of the time. No, it tends to be episodic, and the presence of pain that's there all the time is actually a, a bad sign in terms of our ability to make you better. And are there any? Are there other triggers besides brushing your um, teeth? You know, basically any um, patients. It's different patient to patient, but touching the face or wind on the face, and again chewing or eating, sort of anything. Some people, you know, they bend over or roll over in bed. Anything that kind of. Anything where you get uh, you know brushing against the face or anything like that those those are the main triggers. This sounds like it would be easy to diagnose then you know actually the I always tell my patients uh, when they say, "Well, how do you figure this out?" I just say the diagnosis is in the room don't get me wrong, we do tests, but it's a pretty typical history when I walk in the room, if the patient is you know over fifty and they tell me they have very brief one sided triggered pain and especially if they use the word like electric shock i know that that's the right diagnosis sometimes it's hard because you know everybody's different not everybody reads a textbook sort of thing and i presume that you are the one who sees most of these patients first they're referred by family practitioners yeah in general i would say or sometimes other neurologists when maybe you know the medications that are used that as a neurologist who typically use medications and then um, get neurosurgeons involved when those that's not going very well uh, it's really common for patients to respond to medications for a while, and then they just kind of quit working. I guess the other referral pattern is, you know, Dr. Pollock has a big referral practice because of his surgical expertise. So that's another way. Probably that's the most common way is that I see patients that are coming to see Dr. Pollock and, uh, you know, just go through the history and make sure there's no red flag. So Dr. Bruce mentioned some of those, but, you know, if it's a young patient... Um, if there's any numbness when I examine the patient, that's a big red flag. Because for typical trigeminal neuralgia, you know, they don't, when I examine them, they don't have a difference in the, I use a little pin and check sensation side to side. It sounds horrible, but just to make sure that they feel it okay. Because if they don't, that makes one of those uh, secondary causes like a tumor kind of pushing on that nerve more likely or if it's a young patient you worry about multiple sclerosis which is another reason you need a good exam because those patients tend to have abnormalities on exam that we can pick up and the medications uh, which ones do you use and they're pretty effective yeah i mean i would say uh, you know most patients get a good response to carbamazepine which is an old anti-seizure medicine. It's also called Tegretol. And in fact, if someone gets zero response, it kind of makes me go, 
am, am mm. I sure I have the diagnosis correct? And sometimes I have to start over. In other words, let's just take this history over again. And um, I, I tell them what they told me and we kind of figure it out from there. But most people get response for a while. That can be months or years, but it's very common with this disorder that eventually it wears off. You add another medicine and then what happens is a patient get lots of side effects like dizziness and they feel stupid. Mm -hmm. These medicines we use um, have to get into the brain to work. So patients commonly get side effects. And, you know, one of the reasons I'll get Dr. Pollock involved is, uh, you know, the patient responds, but it's kind of wearing off and now they're dizzy. And let's say they've fallen several times. And, you know, I know the culprit, it's not their trigeminal neuralgia. It's my treatment that's doing that. And then, you know, that's when I think the the risks of a surgical intervention really start to, um, you know, sort of are balanced by the benefits, and the benefits start to be much more significant. Than- All right, so let's assume the medications have failed. You call Dr. Pollock in. Dr. Pollock, you see these patients. What do you do? Basically, we go over their history to be sure we agree that, that things make sense to us as being a trigeminal neuralgia case and not something else. Um, the imaging is important because we do want to rule out these secondary causes. Uh, but assuming all that's come true and either the medicines have stopped working or you can't tolerate the medications, then we sort of go through the different surgical options that are available. Um, the best surgery that we have in terms of outcomes is where we go in and actually move the blood vessels away from the nerve. Um, it is a, a small craniotomy, uh, so we make a small opening behind the ear, and we don't go through any brain. What We work in these natural water sacs that we have to go down and see the, see the trigeminal nerve and mobilize a small artery off the nerve and then put some padding in to keep it away. Uh, the surgery is known as a microvascular decompression. Uh, it typically takes us about two hours, and the hospital stay is typically two days. But, but you the, have to go through the skull to get Yes, that. it yeah. is an open surgery. So the incision is behind the ear about an inch and a quarter. Um, the benefits of that surgery, if you compare it to anything else we do, uh, its success rate is higher. Its durability is better. Most people wake up from surgery, their pain is gone, and we can taper them off their medications within a few a few weeks. And we're not obligated to make you numb to make you better. If we get away from that approach, every other surgical option that we do is based on damaging the nerve. So you're basically trading pain for some degree of nerve dysfunction or numbness. And so we have a variety of operations where we take a a needle from your cheek, guide it up to the nerve, and once that needle's in a correct location, you can burn the nerve, you can crush it with a small balloon, you can put some medicines by it to damage the nerve. Um, They're relatively simple surgeries, and they tend to be done for people in their 70s and 80s. The benefit there is it works very quickly. The third option is we often use radiosurgery, which is directed radiation onto the nerve. It's another method of damaging the nerve using the energy of radiation. Um, The biggest downside to the radiosurgery is it usually takes a few weeks to even a month or two to kick in. And so for someone that shows up who has terrible pain, that's having trouble eating and drinking and maintaining hydration, we typically don't think of radiosurgery as a good option. So we meet with people and go through the different surgical approaches. Uh, in a given year, uh, the majority of people I operate end up having a microvascular decompression. Uh, but the other two operations certainly serve a role, and we do quite a few of those as well. All right, there you go. Hopefully everything our listener wanted to know about trigeminal neuralgia. A chronic pain 
painful condition that affects the trigeminal nerve, the nerve that carries sensation from your face up to your brain, more common in women, usually over the age of 50. Treatment usually starts with medication, and most all the time they are effective, but if they are not, a couple of other options, maybe Botox, but certainly surgery. Our thanks to Dr. Bruce Pollock and Dr. Chris Bays. Appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. Thanks much. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this day for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.